Um, Father, we thank you for your love for us. And Jesus, we thank you for demonstrating the Father's love by coming into this world and laying down your life for us. And we're grateful um, that you said that you will be with us even to the end of the age. And so we hold on to confidence in that truth right now, trusting that you are with us right now. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our eyes to your vision for the world, for the ways you want to encourage us and deepen our faith in you, even in the midst of really uh, trying times. And so we pray you pour out grace in this time. In Christ's name, amen. And we're all shaped by stories. Uh, We're shaped by different kinds of stories. You're shaped by your own kind of personal story, your family's story, the family system you grew up in, the the people you engaged with, sort of cultural narratives that went kind of on around you, but even the stories that you've kind of read or listened to, or whether it's the Bible or some other kind of spiritual background, we're, we're constantly being shaped by stories. And what we call those stories that shape us, we call them meta-narratives. And so a meta-narrative is a kind of an overarching story that helps give shape and meaning to your life. It helps you make sense of life. And so every person in this room, you're kind of, uh, and who's joining us online, you're kind of going through life and your, your meta-narrative or the, the story that is shaping your life is always kind of getting adapted by experiences. When things don't quite fit your story, they stretch it out a little bit, they change it a little bit, and they continue to alter and form you. And those stories, again, have been shaped uh, since you were children. Um, our family loves stories, whether it's movies or books or storytelling. Uh, we really enjoy stories. I remember uh, when our kids, my family's here, when our kids were younger, you know, if you're a parent, you kind of cycle through bedtime routines typically. It's like what works in this season because the main goal is to get your children in bed and, uh, and get them to stay in bed. And so like you're finding these ways to, to kind of get them in bed. And so there are seasons where uh, making up stories was a big piece of like our kind of nightly bedtime routine. So I'd always try to make up these stories and they just kind of get wild and all over the place. And but then there are the evenings where you're just like really, really, really tired. And you go down and you just want to be like, all right, good night, love you, kiss you, pray for you, go to bed. But they'd be like, tell us a story, tell us a story. And so on those nights when I'm tired, I'd be like, okay, once upon a time, there were three little kids, they had a day, and then they went to sleep and stayed in bed the end. You know, like this is a story. And they would just be adamantly against it. They would demand, no, the story has to have a problem. Stories have to have a problem. There has to be a problem in the story. And so they would demand that I'd kind of find a problem. And I'd be like, all right, three kids went to bed. They got out of bed. That was a problem. And then they had to get back in bed, stay in bed the rest of the night. And that's the story. And we, and we would kind of like work on these stories. And I think, I think they are actually onto something that's true. Like good stories have problems. If you're kind of into a Netflix drama or your favorite movie or your favorite book or anything that you're kind of like processing through in life, if you're kind of wanting to be compelled by a good story, it's going to have trouble. It's going to have challenges. And it's through those challenges, as the main character or characters face those challenges, they are forged. Their character is shaped. They have breakthrough. They grow. They develop. Maybe they had some character deficiency that through the struggle and the setback and the loss and the battle, finally, like, they're kind of having this area of growth and growing in maturity. And by the time the, the good story reaches some resolution, the characters have changed through the challenge. And in our culture today, I think many of, our, uh, many of us are subscribing to stories or a story or a meta-narrative where there's not a lot of place for challenges. Uh, many of us have subscribed to a kind of a meta-narrative where the challenges of our life feel really out of place, like we don't know what to do with them. Um, in Tim Keller's 
book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he talks about in the kind of um, secular Western world is probably the least equipped to deal with suffering. And he quotes this guy named Paul Brand, who is a, a doctor, a surgeon, but also a Christian. And, uh, and this is what Paul Brand said. He said, it's because the meaning of life in the United States or in the Western civilization is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom that suffering is so traumatic for Americans. Like when our narrative is that life should keep getting better and better and better, kind of like an economy that's kind of like steady, you know, 7% year after year growth, maybe with a little bit of setback here and there, but long term, it's going to go up and to the right. It's going to get better. And that's our concept of what life ought to be. It ought to go up and to the right, ought to get a little better, a little better. And if there are setbacks, they're just setbacks that are going to yield greater growth next year or kind of more breakthrough or more progress. And so there's a guy named Mark Sayers that talks about this as the sort of secular renewal myth. The way that we think about renewal in Western society or in a place like Denver is that the kind of more we can make progress in our life, the more we can kind of build our kind of own sense of paradise, our own little shalom, our own little garden of Eden, the kind of more we work, it should keep getting better and better and better. And as that kind of gets better and better, I will be more happy. And that's the main goal and the meaning in life. And so whether you're in college or you're middle age, you're older in years, like there's still this tendency to try to like steadily improve our life. And the problem with that approach to life is it doesn't, it doesn't fit with reality. That meta narrative clashes with felt reality, which is why so many people experience things like a midlife crisis. It's like their, their meta narrative, their worldview is not working anymore because they've been giving all their effort to get up and to the right. And now there's regrets and failures and losses that feel like you can't get through. And the reason why I start there is because God's word has a totally different meta narrative. It's offering to us a, a different worldview in which suffering and challenges is, and loss and setbacks and failures have a very prominent place in the formation of God's people. And in biblical terminology, we call this, this season of life the wilderness. The wilderness. That in the kind of biblical worldview, the wilderness is a season of life designed by God designed by God to actually reveal stuff that's within us and refine our faith in him. That's what the wilderness is in biblical kind of worldview. And it shows itself up in the history of Israel. But in the history of Israel, it's also showing itself up as a microcosm for life in this world. And so what I want to do today is just kind of unpack a little bit of Israel's experience in the wilderness, because I think what God did for Israel and to Israel in the wilderness actually deepened their faith in him and, it, what, and what he's doing right now, especially in a year like 2020. This season is designed by God not to just be like a really hard year. God actually wants to do deep, transformative, meaningful, lasting work in our lives. Like this year and all the pain and all the challenges and all the difficulties, and I don't know exactly what those are for you. We'll talk about some of it. But God intends to do deep, deep, meaningful and transformational work in your life. And if we embrace that reality, if we embrace that meta narrative, that 2020 isn't this thing to kind of like erase off of our record. It's not a thing just to muscle through and get past, but it's a season, a wilderness season in which God wants to do powerful, life-transforming work in our life, then it changes our perspective and it actually allows us to embrace this season as a scene that's full of meaning and full of hope. And I think that's what we want, is we want to be people that walk through even the challenges of life as people who understand the meaning and the hope of the wilderness. And so my hope today um, is just for us to look at really uh, four main points. And the first one is, is simply this, that we actually need to face the reality of the wilderness, 
need to face the reality of the wilderness. So if you're familiar with the biblical storyline, the story of Israel is kind of this, this really powerful story of God's formation of a people. And so the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which form up what we call the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses, are the sort of foundational books that help you understand where the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, came from and what God's doing in the world. And the books themselves are laying a foundation uh, for a worldview for the people of God. So if you're reading Genesis, you're reading a book that was written by Moses to help people understand where they came from, where beauty comes from in the world, where brokenness comes from in the world, and what God's doing about all of it. And as you look at the story of Exodus, you're looking at how God has redeemed his people from bondage, takes them through the wilderness, and how he's leading them into a promised land. And so that's where we're finding ourselves in Exodus kind of 15, 16, 17, is the people of Israel have come out of bondage. They're now entering the wilderness, and they're not yet in the promised land. And the reason why that framework is important is I think as Christians, we begin to kind of lose sight of what the Christian life is. And what we often think the Christian life is, is we think that we're living our life and at some point in life, and maybe some of you have already come to this point in life, maybe others, you're kind of feeling that. That's why you're showing up at church, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're you're newer to Christianity, but you're feeling like you're trapped. You're feeling your own inability, your own inadequacy, your your own kind of struggle to make life work. And you're coming to a point like, I need somebody outside of myself. And that's really the foundation of Christianity as we come to this point of, I can't fix my life on my own. I can't patch things up on my own. I can't make life what I want it to be on my own. I have failures and sin and regrets and brokenness and struggles that I can't fix. And so where can I turn? You finally learn that there's a God who, who sees you, who knows you, who loves you, who maybe cares about you, and you learn to turn to him. And that's really the foundation of Christianity, that we turn to him as, as people. And what we find out through the biblical worldview is that that brokenness and inadequacy we feel and the kind of tendency to try to make life work, to build progress in your life without the presence of God is coming because we're starting out in our life with this separation from the God who loves us, the God who's in control, the God who cares for us because we've rejected his wisdom, we've rejected his reign, we've run run away from his presence and we're busy trying to build our lives apart from him. And so as this kind of project of building this life, this attempt at building a flourishing, thriving life apart from the presence of God, as it finally begins to fall flat, we learn that there's a God who came to save, to redeem, to rescue us from this bondage. And so Israel found themselves in a, in a deep situation of pain in Egypt where they're being crushed by inescapable burdens. They couldn't free themselves. They're experiencing destruction and death and pain. And in the midst of this bondage and this slavery, they began to cry out from, to God. And so the beginning of the story of the Exodus is God redeeming or rescuing his people out of bondage. And so as a Christian, that's like when you're finally turning to God and you're like, God, I need forgiveness. I need grace. I need help. I need love. I need care. I need, I need a savior. And you meet Jesus and you're like, he saved me. And, and you want to walk with him. But the expectation sometimes is like that then all of life should be wonderful. Like God exists now to make my life wonderful and to help me make progress in my agenda at life. And so we come out of bondage and we expect immediately to go into this sort of promised land experience of thriving, flourishing life. And so when it's not, when there are challenges, when there are years like 2020 or maybe things in your own personal life, struggles in marriage or medical issues or struggles with relationships or struggles with work or finances and you're feeling like this isn't working, we have a tendency to now want to blame God. Like, what are you doing? 
I thought I turned to you. Shouldn't you now make my life everything I ever wanted it to be? You've actually subscribed to a worldview that's missing the wilderness. You thought it's out of bondage into the promised land, and it's not. It's out of bondage through the wilderness, before the promised land, before all things are new, and before there's this kind of flourishing, vibrant kind of kingdom where all things are what they ought to be. There's justice and rest and peace and love that kind of radiates the world in your life. That's the promised land. That's, that's where things are headed. But right now we're in the wilderness and we need to be honest about it. And so Israel comes out of bondage to Egypt and it was horrific. And immediately they enter into the wilderness. So in Exodus chapter 15, um, there's this song of Moses where they're celebrating everything God had done to redeem them. And then in verse 22, the book takes a bizarre turn, something that I think early readers, if they weren't familiar with the story, wouldn't expect. It says, then Moses, this is Exodus 15, 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. That's it. They had come out of Egypt through the blood of the lamb, through the waters of the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. It's like these miraculous works to redeem people from bondage. And again, they come out of bondage through the blood of a Passover lamb, through the doorposts, through the waters of the Red Sea. And you're like, liberation, freedom, rescued. Everything's going to be awesome. The climax of the story, it's already been nuts. The story's been nuts with these plagues and these incredible acts of God's power. And now they're out and you think like, yes. And then it's like no water for three days. You can barely live. It is hard to live with no water for three days. No water for three days. And you're like, what is going on? What's God doing? And often we get kind of like all angsty at Israel when they get frustrated with God, but it makes sense. It makes sense why they would kind of be frustrated because they just went out of a situation, sort of like a out of the frying pan into the fire situation. Look at what it says. It says, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And then you look at verse 16. So they experienced sweet water, and then they kind of walk through this experience of an oasis. Verse 27 of chapter 15, it says, Then they came to Elam, where there are 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. You're like, great, paradise, finally, promised land. Verse, chapter 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. So now they're lacking food. So they come out of Egypt, and out of Egypt, they come now into this experience of life without water. They finally get water, and now they're experiencing life without food. And if you keep moving through chapter 16, you get into chapter 17, they have another experience of life without water. At the end of chapter 17, they have this experience where this nation of the Amalekites, led by King Amalek, come, and now they're trying to destroy them and chasing them. It is just a painful experience, turn after turn after turn, challenge after challenge. And it's because they're in the wilderness. 
It's because they're in the wilderness. And God has actually designed this as a season for the people of Israel to actually deepen their faith in him. But they have to be honest about the difficulty. And the reason why I want to start there is because for us, in the midst of this life, we tend to, in, in the midst of our experiences and challenges in life, we tend to wonder what's happening when we're in the wilderness, as if it's something that is not fitting in the life of a Christian. And I find, for me, often, it's, it's hard for me to be honest about the difficulties. What I want to do is work harder. I want to create a little oasis. I want to work harder to make my life as good as it can be. If there are setbacks, I want to work harder to overcome the setbacks. And I find myself in life striving and straining and kind of like constantly stressing out, trying to build an oasis in the wilderness versus just being honest. The life in this world is a wilderness. It is. There are challenges and there are difficulties. And I don't, I don't know how you're facing them, but we see them all around us. Again, maybe in this season, there's real economic hardship for you. Maybe you're furloughed from your job. Uh, maybe there's sickness in your life or in the life of loved ones that you're wrestling through, like real significant stuff. Maybe there are relational struggles in the midst of a time of isolation. You're new to Denver and you're struggling building friendship and you were just starting to get connected and, and now you're feeling like because of COVID and quarantine, you feel totally isolated. Or maybe you feel stuck relationally. You're, you're kind of been in close quarters with your family and it's challenging. It's drawing out all of this unhealth and these things that were probably there under the surface are now like right on the surface and you're feeling tension and difficulties. Or in a political season with divisions and in the middle of intense injustices in our world, different opinions about what the problem is and what the solutions are. You're finding with your extended family or people that have been friends for a long time, now you can't even be around them without conversations just becoming intense and challenging. You're in the wilderness. You're in the wilderness. So the question I want to ask you as we kind of think about this is where right now do you most feel the reality of the wilderness? Where do you most feel it? And just to be honest about that, this is where I feel it. Don't tuck it away. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not real. Don't have this sort of Pollyannish optimism like everything's going to be fine. Everything's fine. Look on the bright side. The look on the bright side approach to life never works in the long term. Eventually it always leads to just a total breakdown and typically towards cynicism and a total running away from God and other people and running away from hope. So face the reality of the wilderness. Now what happens when you face it? The reason why it's hard to face is because the second point, which is the wilderness reveals our vulnerability. It reveals our vulnerability or our inadequacy. Both terms would work and both terms are really hard for me to say because being vulnerable or feeling inadequate is the last thing I ever want to feel. My whole life has been bent on trying to be adequate. And that's my own family story. It's my own background. But I want to be enough. I want to succeed. I want to achieve. I want to not fail. And I have like all sorts of my identity wrapped up in, in kind of like showing I'm strong enough. I'm capable enough. I can do it. I can hold things together. I can like hang on to life. And I can get my family through it. And I can get our church through it. Like I can do this. And the wildernesses of time of coming face to face with our own inadequacy, our own vulnerability, our own inability to get ourselves through this. I mean, that's what the wilderness is at its very essence. It's, it's a place where human resources are inadequate to get you through. Your own strength, your own wisdom, your own savings account, your own relationships, it's not enough to get you through. 
And as much as you keep kind of leaning on self-reliance, as much as I keep leaning on self-reliance, I'm actually robbing myself of an opportunity to deepen my faith in God, which is why the wilderness seasons, especially when you kind of mount trial after trial on top of each other like this season has, it can be. And hear me, it's not good. The pain is not good, but the outcome of that pain can be good when it actually brings us to the end of our self-sufficiency. We say, I, I need help. My friendships, my relationships, my marriage, my parenting, my own ability to have emotional health. I feel emotionally frazzled. I feel overwhelmed and anxious. I'm struggling with depression. Whatever it is that they bring us to this place where we actually feel our vulnerability. And we don't, like, we don't like to feel it. And the Israels didn't like to feel it. And so we respond in different ways. For the Israelites, one of the ways they respond is by anger and blame. And that's one of the ways we do. You see it right there in the text, time after time, every time there's a difficulty. In chapter 15, they start crying out to Moses and Aaron, their leaders. Chapter 16, they're blaming Moses and Aaron, their leaders. It comes again in chapter 17. They always kind of in the midst of the difficulty of the wilderness want to blame somebody. Somebody messed us up. Somebody did something wrong. And we do that. We all do that. We, we struggle. We want to blame a leader. We want to blame the government. We want to blame the people around us. We want to blame our spouse as if our spouse is the enemy or we want to blame our kids or we want to blame our employer or our coworkers or, or whatever it is. We want somebody to blame because I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I don't like feeling out of control. I don't like feeling undone in these ways. And so if I can blame somebody, I can actually kind of regain a sense of control by blaming it on them, kind of putting the onus on them, and then I feel kind of free from whatever God wants to do in me because this isn't about me. This is about their failure to lead, their failure to guide. Another way that we tend to respond is by clamoring for control. I find this in my own life. I find when stuff seems to be kind of spiraling out of control in all these other areas, I want to find a little pocket of life I can control, right? So, I do like house projects because that's like I can like do something. I can like work on this house project or I can mow a lawn or I can edge something. And it's like, it looked bad. I worked on it. It looks better. I like did something productive in my life and like something. Or you're working hard to kind of, kind of renegotiate friendships in a hard season or renegotiate your kind of finances or find a new kind of employment situation. Something to kind of regain a sense of control. But that leads to stress, anxiety, manipulation, and we continue to push away from the reality of the wilderness because we're pushing away from facing our own vulnerability. And another thing we tend to do is try to escape. And you see this again in the text. Look at verse chapter 16. This is in verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, multiple times for the Israelites throughout their time in the wilderness, they will say, I wish we could be back in Egypt. Back in this place that was crushing them, back in the midst of this bondage that was just entrapping them and sucking the life out of them and oppressing them. They're saying, I would rather be back there. So they have this nostalgic view of like, at least there's food back there and there's water back there. And they're kind of forgetting the pain of back there. And so they're escaping the pain and the discomfort of their vulnerability and their inadequacy with this fantasy of escaping back to bondage. And we do that too. And, and that's where things can get really, sometimes it can feel really kind of like ordinary, like just binging on TV day after day after day after day, knowing that you wake up the next morning feeling more exhausted. But it was just a way to escape the pain. Substance abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse of some kind. You're like, well, it's not abuse, it's legal. 
It's an escape tactic to run away from pain, to numb yourself, to soften the edges of the difficulty using medicines, prescription meds, or whatever it is as a way to escape the pain, pornography, things like that, that just are a way to kind of like go back to bondage. These things that you know crush you, that you know are unhealthy, that deteriorate your soul, that shrivel you up from the inside, but it's a way to escape to escape the discomfort of our inadequacy and our vulnerability, to run back to these things that crush us and ultimately lead us feeling worse and worse and worse, making these promises that it will give you some temporary alleviation, but ultimately crush you even more. That's all super depressing. Hi, my name is Gary. I preach at Park Church and, uh, and I depress people regularly in sermons. Um, I think it's important to face reality. It's important to face reality. There's so much hope. There's so much hope. But where's the hope when you're terrified to, to see your own ad- inadequacy? Uh, I remember coming face to face with the word inadequacy in my life and having to use it for myself for the first time. It was an elder meeting. It was a retreat four or five years ago. And I was so overwhelmed. Felt like I was working harder than I'd ever worked in my life. More hours, more energy, more effort. And I still just felt like I couldn't get things the way I wanted them to be. And I was emotionally undone. And I remember we kind of had this moment where we all went apart to pray, just asking God, just kind of come before God, where are we at with God right now? And kind of came back to share. And I I was like, my lip was just quivering because in my journal I had written, I feel inadequate. But to say that in front of these guys was so painful for me because I didn't want to own that because I feel like it, it would say something about me that I didn't want people to know. And when I finally did say that to them and the way they loved me and cared for me and gave me room to be human, room to be inadequate, room to fail, room to mess up, room to be tired, the freedom you feel when you own your vulnerability, when you own your inadequacy, when you're honest about that is beautiful. It is liberating. It is transformative. And that's what God calls us to do is to own our vulnerability, to own it, to be honest. To be honest where you feel stuck, to be honest where you feel depressed, where you feel anxious, where you feel overwhelmed, to be honest where you feel scared and nervous, to be honest where you feel just confused and want to run away from the confusion, to be honest where you have escaped, where you have clamored for control, where you have been angry, just to be honest. I'm kind of freaking out and I know I'm not responding well. I'm just scared. I'm overwhelmed. I'm tired. I'm weary. And here I am, God. Here I am. This is me. Depressed, anxious, overwhelmed, fearful, inadequate, in need. And now, now you're in a place to receive the beauty of God's love, God's care, God's provision, God's grace, God's nearness to you. And it's stunning. And so the question I want to ask you here is, how are you right now responding to your vulnerability? How are you responding? Clamoring for control, getting angry at people, escaping to unhealthy places, unhealthy practices? And what would it look like just to be honest about where you're at with God and maybe with some others? And when you do, you can begin to see God do deep work. And this is this third point, that the wilderness refines our faith in God. It refines our faith in God. Over and over and over again in, this, in these chapters, Moses, and in some cases Moses and Aaron, 
In some cases, Moses and Aaron and Joshua, somebody turns to God and they cry out to God. We need you. We need water. We need food. We need water. We need help and deliverance from these enemies that are coming to us. They finally turn to God. Like we can't manufacture water. We can't just like dig, dig, dig in the wilderness and finally find a well. It's like instead of continuing to kind of give this effort to build an oasis in your own strength in the wilderness, they finally say, God, we need you. We need you. And the way God meets them over and over and over again is stunning, miraculous, beautiful. To see him bring sweet water out of the bitter land, to see him bring bread from heaven in this manna and provide for them manna day in, day out for 40 years in the wilderness, again and again and again, providing for them in all of their need, providing water out of a rock in chapter 17 and then bringing victory over the Amalekites at the end of chapter 17. Again and again and again, God comes through and that's what God's doing in the wilderness. He's actually building our faith. He is sufficient where we are insufficient. He is adequate and capable when we are inadequate and incapable. He has power in the midst of our weakness. And when we own our need, he dives into our lives to bring healing and transformation and grace. And what that does in us is it helps us be fully human, the way humans were designed to be, which is dependent on God. Self-reliance is the great enemy towards spiritual dependence. And God wants nothing of it in his people. He wants us to be spiritually dependent people. And so he often brings us to the end of our ability, to the end of our our kind of imagined sense that we could do this without him. He's like, no, you can't. You were never designed to. Human beings will not flourish apart from the presence of God. We won't. And so he does these things to deepen our faith in him. And this is true. You see it in all of the New Testament writers. You see it so beautifully in people like James, who says, this is the half-brother of Jesus, who says, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. Like, wait, count it joy when you fall into trials and challenges? Like, do you know what the trials and challenges are in my life? There's nothing joyful about them. James doesn't say, think that the trial is joy. He says, count it all joy, knowing that the trying of your faith produces endurance. Like the outcome has a product of deepened reliance on God, deepened intimacy with God, deepened joy in God, deepened security with God, deepened rest with God, where you as a human being were made to find it. That makes you a mature, strong person. Like your faith has strengthened through the, through the testing of it. It's like this wind that like, you know, blows and it kind of knocks you off your feet. And you're like, oh man, that's the strongest wind I've ever faced. And so you widen your stance a little bit. And that same wind blows and it doesn't knock you over anymore. But a stronger wind blows later and it knocks you back. And you're like, that was stronger. And you kind of broaden the stance a little bit more. And little by little, your faith has become strong. You've become mature. You've become full of faith in God's ability to provide because you've seen him meet you again and again and again with his love, his grace, his power, his nearness. Sometimes delivering you from bondage, sometimes or from the trial, sometimes giving you grace and his nearness and his sufficiency in the midst of it. You see it in people like Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, the apostle says that as we hope in this future outcome, the salvation of our souls, we are right now, if necessary, being grieved by various trials. Here's what he says the purpose is. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, when it's tested by fire, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a sense of like 
The trials are like a furnace. They're like a crucible. They're like a fire. And the testing that God does isn't like pass-fail. The testing that God does, it reveals the things we're hoping in and it refines. God's testing reveals and it refines. It reveals our inadequacy. It reveals our vulnerability. It reveals our idolatries, the things we grasp for apart from him. It's revealing these things, the kind of impurities in our faith, but it's also burning them away to make the gold of our faith more precious, more beautiful, more radiant. It's people that have faced chronic pain, intense loss, like things that feel like irreparable failures in their life. When they hang on to Jesus through that, their faith is just gorgeous. I mean, it is stunning. It's like a gem because they have had to hold on to God and things in face of challenges that I can't even fathom. And so I don't make light of the challenges. God doesn't make light of the challenges. Jesus weeps with those who weep. But what he's producing in us is stunning and it's radiant. And it's the type of stuff that radiates beyond yourself to give the world hope around you. And so the question I want to ask you today is where might God be working to grow your faith in him? Maybe it's in the middle of your marriage as you're feeling anger or clamoring for control. Or maybe it's in work and you're feeling just like you can't control your employment situation. You can't unfurlough yourself. You can't find the job that you long for. Maybe you're in the middle of grad school or college and and it's derailed your plans. Uh, Maybe there's dreams or ambitions you have and this is just like a massive setback. Is it possible that God's wanting to deepen something in you? Your trust in him, your joy in him. Because you're made to find sufficiency in him. And when you do, you are free. I mean, you are free. You're free to walk through the wilderness, trusting in him along the way. Which is what this last line is, that Jesus is actually inviting us to follow him through the wilderness. When Jesus entered into the world, he entered into the people who were in bondage. And like the blood of the lamb in The story of the Exodus, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes upon the sin of the world. He shed his blood so that people could be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God. And upon being reconciled to God, he gave people his Holy Spirit. And he did not bring us to the new heavens and new earth or the way way we want the world to be. His Spirit is with us in the wilderness right now. And the New Testament again and again and again will show that Jesus is the bread from heaven. Jesus is the water from the rock. Jesus is the presence of God that guides us day by day. Jesus is the one who wins victory over our battles. Jesus is the one that we can turn to day in and day out and know that God is with us. He's not against us. He's not opposed to us. He's for us. And Jesus comes into this world inviting people, follow me, follow me, follow me. You weren't supposed to do this alone. You weren't supposed to pray a prayer and wait till you die. You weren't supposed to kind of keep clamoring for control. You weren't supposed to just live your life building towards the American dream. You were supposed to walk with me. And he's inviting us to today to actually orient our life around his presence. To wake up in the morning and say, I need daily bread. And man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I need Jesus today. To actually go to him as the fountain of living water that can refresh your soul and weariness. To go to him as the lover of your soul that when you're feeling rejection from friendships or strife in your marriage, there's a God in whose love you are totally secure. To go to him in your weariness and find rest. To go to him when you're lacking hope and remember that Jesus has promised that he will come again and make all things new. 
And that hope, that hope that he's going to come again, he's going to make all things new, the hope that you know the end of the story actually can help us sustain this life as we walk with Jesus day by day, trusting in his presence, trusting in his nearness, trusting in his sufficiency, and trusting that he has the power to redeem and restore everything that's been broken. And he's the only one that has that power. So the invitation is to follow him, to walk with him and trust in him. Let's pray.